All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we'll be in Romans chapters 10 and 11. Lord willing, we'll see how far we get, but that's my goal. It's 10 and 11. And we'll pray and we'll get started here while you're turning there. Lord, we thank you for the worship we've been able to do. I just love that part where um, oh, maybe I put two and two together. Maybe it wasn't in the words exactly, but it's, it's our opportunity to sing praises to you. And if we don't, the rocks would, And but you give preference to us. And what an honor it is for us to sing uh, and worship you. Um, we love to hear your word. We love to worship in that way also, but to be able to sing um, praises to you, um, you inhabit the praises of your people. And that's a, that's a special thing. And so we thank you for that tonight. We pray that you'd help our hearts and our minds and uh, everything within us to be ready for um, just this next, this next area of worship. As we submit ourselves to your word, we have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts wide open, soft and tender, and, uh, and an understanding beyond just getting the details and the, the data, but um, truly to have knowledge of you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. These are a wonderful two chapters here. As Paul goes on and speaks to the Romans about the nation of Israel, he left off last week with, boy, I wish they were saved. And that's, a, <laughs> that's an understatement. He actually said that I wish that I was accursed. If that would save them, he says, I'd be accursed. I'd willingly trade my eternity with you, God, for their eternity with you. And of course, um, he knows that was a foolish statement to make in the sense that Jesus has already made that sacrifice for them. And, uh, and he doesn't thrust his grace upon anybody. He offers it, but he doesn't force it on anybody. It's not uh, something that people have to take. It's something they receive. And so tonight he moves on as he talked about predestination and his foreknowledge of those who would be saved and those wouldn't. He moves on to the responsibility of men. And no matter what he says about God's sovereignty, um, his um, authority, um, there is still our responsibility to respond. Sometimes there are those moments that I have as a pastor with people where you just have to look them in the eye and say, when are you going to start being obedient to his word? You keep trying to bypass what he tells you to do. You're trying to find other avenues for peace, comfort, uh, understanding of God, closeness with him, other than the prescribed way he's given you in his word. You keep trying to find another route. When are you just going to be obedient to what he says to do? And it's kind of a, a blunt moment at times, but sometimes we need that. Paul is sharing that with the Romans and that Israel has had that blunt moment. Jesus is literally on the donkey, looking at Jerusalem, weeping over it, saying, you should have known this was the day of your salvation. It's a blunt moment. Later on, he says to the women that are weeping behind him as he's carrying his cross, and I shared that at one point. That section of scripture is very powerful. Jenny shared it with me when she was, when we were sitting across from each other in the morning and having our time and she said, isn't it amazing that he looks at them in his moment of crisis and weakness and all, and looks at them and doesn't try to comfort the weeping women. He looks at them and says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves, for what's coming. Because he understood and they needed to understand right then and there that my first coming is gracious and beautiful and merciful, and it's a rescue mission for the whole world. My second coming is not like that. It's different. And so he 
hits upon this a little bit. Nation of Israel, for the most part, has rejected the grace of God through their Messiah, Jesus Christ. They've rejected him. The suffering Messiah was bothersome to them. It was a stumbling block that he mentioned last week in our chapter. It bothered them that this Christ was so weak that he got killed on a cross when actually that's the only way of salvation. Sacrifice had to be made. But they didn't understand that. Now, some did believe. We read about the two guys that buried him. We know from the scriptures, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees actually kind of turned to the Lord and believed on this Messiah. So it wasn't in total, but that's what Paul was getting at last week. Not everybody who's Israel governed by God is Israel governed by God. They're in name, they're in nation, but they're not in heart governed by God. And we liken that to ourselves as Christians to be careful that we don't have Christianity as a name or that we don't have a nation that's Christian, or we go to a facility that's called Christian. I recently posted on Facebook on our page, um, Duke Divinity. It's a division of Duke University, a United Methodist um, School of Theology. Um, had an enormous service for uh, gay pride. And when they started their service, they said, uh, welcome in the name of the queer one is what they called God. That's blasphemous, first of all. It's counter to Scripture. And it's also apostasy. It's what we read about. It's the great apostasy that will take place where believers will be confused and deceived and begin to think other than, well, as they put it in their website, we like to be ecumenical and embrace all versions of faith. No. No, that's not okay. That's not okay. And so we see here the nation of Israel that couldn't accept the Christ. Some did, some didn't, but very few, a remnant did. Paul will talk about the remnant, but for the most part, there's a blindness over Israel. And if you go there today and were to visit, you'd realize that. When you go to Israel, if you haven't been there, try to get there if you can. I think it's a wonderful, I, I, would, I would encourage you to go by yourself <laughs> and just go rent a car and just enjoy it. And take time where you want to take time and go. When you get on a tour, it's rush, 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 rush. Words, 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 words. Moving, 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 moving. And you really don't get that moment with the Lord. You just are a tourist. You're a sightseer, basically, which is fine if you don't know where to go. But I think it's more fun to figure it out and get lost sometimes, you know. But what you realize when you get there is there aren't very many religious Jewish people there, <laughs> believe it or not. In fact, most are atheists. They don't even attend synagogue over there, a lot of them. Most of them, actually. It's a, it's a majority that don't go. It's amazing, you know. You're like, wow, I just kind of figured it was just the Holy Land, so everybody there is kind of at least doing old school holy, not New Testament holy, but old school holy. Nope, they're not. They'll have their bar mitzvahs, their bat mitzvahs, they have their traditions and things like that for the most part, but they live like the world. It's amazing. So there's a blindness in part, and he, he gets to that. Chapter 10, verse 1, brethren, brothers and sisters in the Lord in Rome, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, began, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
Now, Paul isn't saying that the law is done for and that we shouldn't um, adhere to it or look to it or desire that in our lives. The law is perfect. It's wonderful. It's, I mean, it's God, godly attributes. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's just trying to use it to get to righteousness because that's how it was in the Old Testament. If you obeyed, then you were righteous. If you didn't obey, then you were unrighteous. That all changed with Christ. Christ now imputes his righteousness to us, gives it to us. So there's the law route where you attempt and you try and you work and you attempt. And this is for salvation, trying to attain to heaven, to get to be with God forever. And then there's the New Testament, which is Jesus Christ then died on the cross and fulfills the law for us and gives us this righteousness. Doesn't mean that the law was wrong. It just meant we were very weak in our ability to keep it. Okay. So Paul here is saying, I wish they would all get saved, but they keep trying to attain salvation through their own righteousness, through their own works, through their own good deeds. And I tell you, so many in Christian the Christian world, I keep saying Christendom, it's a good term to use, but some people don't know what that means. People in churches all over the world that worship Jesus are still doing the balance, the weighing good in my life versus bad in my life. And if I die at the right point where there's more good than bad, I'm in. And so when you have a bad week, boy, you got to make up for it next month. Got to tip that balance over. And that's how Christians live their life. And they never have assurance of salvation. They never know. There's always this pit, this sinking feeling in their stomach of, I don't know. I don't want to even know yet. I don't think I've done enough good. And you see that in the end of their lives, giving their money away to the poor, trying to do things they should have been doing their whole lives, trying to work, 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 sweating bullets to see if they're going to make it in. That's without knowledge. That's attempting. That's zeal. That's desire. I love the fact you're giving money to the poor. That's a great thing to do. Nothing wrong with that. That should come from salvation though, not for it. It should come because you've just had a wonderful worship experience with the Lord and you feel moved by the Holy Spirit to do something for somebody. You know, you just want to be God's hands and feet, but not because you're fearful or you think your salvation is in jeopardy. You know, The nation of Israel has a zeal for God, and boy, did they ever. They wore the big coats. They had the long aprons. They have the thing. And there's guys over in Israel right now that look like that, Hasidic Jews. You go to to New York, you'll see them there too. And they got the little curls, and they've got the rules and regs. No idea why, you know, don't cut the corners of your beard. And yet, you kind of wonder if they've had that beard forever and if they haven't trimmed it once in a while. You know, there's just these things that they have. But they, boy, they look super Jewish. Super Jewish. Got this big black hat that's round and flat and all. Then when they're inside, they've got their white aprons on. We went to B&H Photography. Huge worldwide, you know, distributor of um, electronics and things like that in New York City. When I took Seth to New York for his 14-year-old trip, we went to B&H Photography because he likes that stuff, you know. And they've got this place you walk in. It's run by Hasidic Jews. Every single person in there got the white thing on, got the curls, got the shaved head, the whole thing, and they're all doing their thing, and they're busy, and they're working. Totally normal when you talk to them, you know. Not some weird accent or something like this, New Yorkers, you know. And that was a terrible accent, but that was like, and they had these conveyor belts over, and they they ship something all of a sudden over the, the packages would go. It looked like Amazon above, you know, and Amazon where else above, and below was all the store shelves. And we were just in, just amazed at this place, you know, Hasidic Jews, 
boy, they looked. And boy, you go to their website or you go into their store, sundown on Friday, doors are shut. Internet is shut. They don't let you take any orders. They say, you can put your order in, but we're not going to fulfill it until Sunday, you know, because we are Jewish, religious. That's wonderful zeal. Honoring God or trying to at least have that appearance, but it's not according to knowledge, Paul says. And Paul was the smartest Jew in the group here. He says, I've been there. I've been to the top of that zeal. I used to persecute the Christians, he said earlier in Romans. I used to kill them. Not anymore. Now I have knowledge. Now I have understanding. My zeal is still there. Boy, he still has zeal, doesn't he? Didn't lose his zeal when he came to Jesus. He was just zealous in the right direction. You know? So both are important. Zeal isn't bad. It is, though, by itself. It is by itself. We need to have that knowledge. For they being ignorant, and that is a word we don't like to hear about ourselves very often, but he means it in the nicest way, but just without knowledge. You know, there are certain things, if I was to be a brain surgeon, I would be ignorant. (laughs) You do not want me operating on your brain because I am ignorant of these things. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make me feel bad at all. I didn't go to school for that. That's all he's saying. You're ignorant of God's righteousness. You're without knowledge about God's righteousness. It's so much more. God's righteousness is so much better than your righteousness. Seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted. That is the word that is throughout Scripture. Submit, submit, submit. To submit. I don't want to submit, you know. Submitting means failure. Submitting means loss. Submitting means, well, yeah. You submit to his righteousness because you've already failed to attain God's righteousness. You've, you've sinned. You've fallen short. And so the failure's there. You've already been pinned. You've already tapped out. Nothing you can do about it. There's no way to go back and undo these things. You've tapped. That's a MMA reference if you didn't know. What he's saying is now that you realize that you've tapped out, which is the knowledge we need to start off with, we need to figure out how else do I win? How else do I get the trophy, the prize? How else do I get to where I want to go? Well, then there's Christ who won. He didn't tap out. He absolutely won. He was victorious over death. And that's the righteousness of Christ. For Christ, his winning, his resurrection that we celebrated last Sunday is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. And here's what he says. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks this way. It's different. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And here's what it is, colon, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. 
For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You couldn't get more clear than that. What must I do to be saved? This. How do I know that I'm going to heaven because I feel like I'm going to hell? I feel like I've got a foot in there. I feel like I'm, I'm in trouble. And you know it in your heart. How do I get out of trouble? Every one of us has experienced that in some way or a form other than salvation, whether that's with your parents, whether that's with the police, whether that's with your teacher, whether that's with whomever. You've been to that place where you've done something wrong. You know you're in trouble. And the big question is, how do I get out of this? And for most people, covering it up is a solution. Glossing over it, forgetting it, covering it with a lie, doing something else. And here's what he says he wants us to do instead. Would you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus? And what that means is, and I don't want to decipher it, or I don't want to elaborate on it too much because it is simply that. But when you say Lord Jesus, you have to mean that. When you confess Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, those both have to take place. You can't, it's not an incantation, it's not some spell. Okay, Lord Jesus, and turn around three times. It's not like that. It's the Lord Jesus. You're Lord of my life. You're Lord of all. I admit and see that you are everything. I'm created by you. I've sinned against you. You've admitted a lot when you say Lord Jesus. You've made him, what they say, kurios, I think is the Greek term for this, which is calling him God. You're God in my life. I worship you. I worship no other but you. That's it. So you confess Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He's not saying the cross doesn't matter. He's saying that's part of it. There were three guys that were crucified. Okay. It isn't that that saved us. It was the fact that the grave couldn't hold him that saved us. They all three died, but Jesus got up. He rose himself from the dead, he says. So you believe that he was raised from the dead. And and the reason you have to believe that is not that, so I have to believe some story about some guy that got out of a tomb. That's not the point. And I think we've talked about this for a couple weeks now, but it's very important to understand that the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world the entire week before Easter was being examined by every ruler, whether that was governmental with Pontius Pilate or whether that was the the religious rulers of the day, and both groups said, we find no fault in this man. The purpose of those two statements was to prove that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was perfect. There's no sin in him. Sin is the only thing that keeps us in the grave. Sin is the only thing that causes us to die. The wages of sin is death. Jesus dies on the cross, but grave couldn't hold him, couldn't keep him. He gets back up again. That's why we believe in the resurrection. If we don't believe in the resurrection and Jesus is still in the grave, then he was a sinner and didn't save us, and we're all in big trouble, is the idea. It is not optional. So Paul makes that clear. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. He goes on to describe that. Very true. Very simple. Now, what bothered them was that last portion of that paragraph. This is what's causing them to be stirred and causes Paul to move into another direction with his conversation with these people. Because there's no distinction between Jews and Greeks. Say that again, Paul. 
They don't like that. The Jewish people are the chosen people. And from the very beginning, from the moment they were chosen, they really never did understand their mission. God's mission in this world was for the nation of Israel to lead everybody to him. It says that to Abraham, all the families of the nations will be blessed by your seed. All of them. I'm going to pour out my blessing, my mercy, my guidance, my protection upon this one nation so the whole world can see by example what it's like to have me as their God and them to be my people. And you guys worship me the way I want to. And everybody's going to be watching us and they're all going to come to know me. But they never understood that they thought we were the only ones. We're the ones that were saved. And they grew up like that and they would walk around, you know. And they would see Gentiles. And Gentiles, we've said this before, were firewood for hell. That's how they considered them. And Paul's like, no, no, no. There's no distinction anymore between Jews and Gentiles. And he's going to go on to explain that to them. Verse 14. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. This is why I do what I do. This is why what every pastor does what they do. That's why what every missionary does what they do. Every pastor is a missionary. Some are missionaries in Maryville, Missouri. Some are missionaries in Africa. David, you know, point to him. But we're all missionaries, and this is how it happens. You can't confess Jesus as Lord without hearing about it. How are you going to hear about it unless someone's sent? And so it's a very simple thing. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey my commandments, to know them, to teach the word of God. We're called to that. And so Paul just simply says, it's for everybody. It's always been for everybody. The gospel is not just for Jerusalem and not just for Judea, but to the uttermost parts of the world, he says. That's the Great Commission. And the Jews need to understand that. Even the believing Jews need to say, so Judea, we got to go further? I mean, didn't we cover all the Jews? Aren't they all here? (laughs) It's everybody. Everybody needs to know how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. Why do I post stuff about a United Methodist Duke divinity thing? I mean, are you just trying to stir up trouble? Are you just trying to show yourself better than everybody else? No, because it's unloving. It's not beautiful good news to let people know that in their sin, you're fine. God isn't going to release you. He's not going to protect you. He's not going to bring you out of it. He's not going to change you. You're just fine. Who wants to hear that? The reason people come to the gospel of Jesus Christ is because they're stuck in a cycle and they're spiraling and they're depressed and they're lost and hopeless in their life where they are. I post it because there's no hope there. There's no salvation there. There's no, there's nothing. It's the most unloving thing we can do to alleviate ourselves of the uncomfortable conversation with people about their sin. To look at them and say, you know, I don't think God cares so much. Who are you to say that? He says implicitly in his word, I care. I very much care about these things. That's why I sent my son. We continue down this road of that's not sin. This isn't sin and that's not sin and that's okay. And everything's okay. We don't need Jesus anymore. We make the cross of no effect. 
and the resurrection worthless. When you share the gospel in your conservative, bigoted way, whatever the world wants to call it, you are the most loving people on the earth because you understand what you've been released from in your sin, that he desperately wants to release them of their sin because whether they admit it or not, it is a burden and it weighs them down and they carry it like the heaviest backpack they've ever carried. And everybody in the world who's so worried about themselves are just cheering them on. You can carry it. You can carry it. That's not loving. Jesus came to undo the heavy burdens to take these off, to let people be free. I felt that weight fall off my back. It's unbelievable. We used to do that in Sunday school for the kids so they can kind of understand the idea. Put them in the door frame, you know, have them press their arms against the door frame for a long period of time, maybe 30 seconds to a minute. Then have them step out and their arms naturally just kind of float up like this because they've done that for so long. I said, that's what it's like. That's what you feel like. He said, are my feet touching the ground today? It's amazing. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, peace with God. Not peace, the absence of conflict. Peace with God. God's not angry anymore. There's no more wrath waiting for me. There's peace between you and God. That is beautiful news. Those are glad tidings. Those are good things. Verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, in other words, all of Israel, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I, I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Psalm 19.4, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, Deuteronomy 32.21, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Now he brings in the Gentiles. So he starts off in verse 16. Who's believed our report? Didn't they all hear? Didn't they all have the opportunity to do what we just read about? Confessing with your mouth, the Lord Jesus. They sure did. But not everybody believed. Not everybody mixed it with faith. Jesus would preach to 5,000 people plus at a time. They all heard the same words. Some were overjoyed and filled. Others were just walked away mocked. It's always like that. Every time. Some mix it with faith, the word of God, and they believe on it. And so much so that they actually do it and admit it and submit to God's word. And they're absolutely changed and transformed. It's a wonderful life. Others hear it and they're like, yeah, I don't know. And they go away doubting. Have they not all heard? Yep, the sound has gone out to all the earth. What's happened then? God has moved to the Gentiles. I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold saying, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. They didn't even know they needed a savior. And I showed up anyway. But to Israel, those who are supposed to be governed by God, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And he's not just being mean. He loves the nation of Israel. That's why he spent those last two chapters explaining that. I wish I was a curse for your sake, for the nation of Israel's sake, so that they could be saved. I wish they'd all get saved. 
because he knows he's going to have to say this. God has prophesied in Isaiah 65 too, that he has tried and tried and tried to get you to understand who he was and to believe on him for salvation. And you won't. I've stretched my hand out all day long to a disobedient and contrary people. That's a hard thing to hear for them. But it's an important place to put them in because unless you know you need a savior, you'll never cry out for one. So he's got to take them to this place. Chapter 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Please hold on to that. Here's why. Replacement theology began when the nation of Israel is no longer a nation and everybody assumed, well, Israel's not here anymore. So the unfulfilled promises for Israel must mean those are for the church. So replacement theology. Church has replaced Israel. So now all the things where it says is for Israel really means us. That's code. No, Paul's trying to fix that. Um, Even before it was invented. (laughs) If they read their Bibles, they'd understand that. But they were so despondent that the nation of Israel is no longer a nation. How can a people become a people again? That's never going to happen. And then it happened. Israel became a nation again after World War II, after the Holocaust. And that replacement theology should have been like, oh, we'll put that in the trash can. Let's go back to the way it's supposed to be. God has not forsaken his people because if he forsook the nation of Israel, he could forsake you. And he says, that's not true. I haven't forsaken them and I will not forsake you. Certainly not, he says, for I also am an Israelite. I'm a believer and I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Another doctrine refuted. What doctrine? The lost tribes of Israel. After Babylon, some of them didn't come back. And we don't know if all the tribes got back or not. And we think Benjamin's over here. And then the Danish, the Danish, that's where the the Dans went. And on and on and on. The lost tribes of Israel. One of them was Benjamin's, the Benjamites. Paul says right here, I made it back and I'm a Benjamite. I'm not lost at all. I'm right here. No lost tribes. They're all there. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scriptures say, uh, says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. That's, That's what Elijah was saying. I'm the only one left. Kill them. Would you kill them? He spoke against Israel this way. And God says this, but what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal or bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, Paul says, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, and it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise work is no longer work. So he makes the contrast there. You can either have grace only or works only, but you can't combine the two because once you start doing works, it's no longer grace and vice versa. He tries to explain that to the Galatians who had begun well. The Galatians were saved. They were born again. They were having a wonderful walk with the Lord. God was convicting them in certain areas and not in other areas and just bringing them along beautifully. And then those guys who were believers of the circumcision came in and told them, that's great. Glad you're born again, but you must be circumcised. You must read the King James Bible only. Oop, sorry. 
They come in afterwards and try to destroy what God has begun in them, this beautiful grace, this beautiful mercy, relationship with him, no longer a contract of legal obligation, fulfill the law or you're dead men, sign on the dotted line, but a beautiful marriage, a relationship between a man and a woman, between a God and his people. It's no longer contractual. It is, no, I just love you because I set my love upon you. And you love me because you choose to also. And now we have this instead of that. And so Paul writes this in Galatians 5, verses 1 through 3. Stand fast, therefore, Galatians, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. He's not picking on circumcision. What he's saying is, if you've begun in the spirit, do you think you're going to be made perfect in the flesh? You begin in the spirit, you stay in the spirit. Every movement of God has been destroyed by organization. And unfortunately, Calvary Chapel will be no different. We can't help ourselves. What God began in the spirit way back in the 60s and 70s with a bunch of creepy hippies who had tried everything under the world, all the drugs, and they walk into church, you know. And some guy and some woman, Kay and Chuck Smith, began to love on these people and share the truth with them, be honest with them, never pulled any punches. And they start getting saved, and this beautiful revival took place because the world had steered all these young people in the wrong direction to self-gratification, and it didn't work, and they needed something, and they knew they needed Jesus, and they were fulfilled. It was a beautiful work of God. And these crazy hippies would get saved, and they'd start writing music, and then they'd just get sent out to start churches. These guys in flip-flops, hey, anybody want to start a church, sit on the beach, and there they began. And then someone else would be in a warehouse over there and someone else would be over there. And there's this beautiful thing happening. 1,500 churches worldwide all of a sudden, just from people being dumb enough to preach the gospel only and teach the word of God. But like any other movement, eventually it'll get organized and we'll figure out how it can be done and we'll hand out manuals. Unfortunately, I'm doing my best to be a dumb hippie, you know, I'm a little preppy, I guess, but I'm trying to be that way, you know, to stay there, to stay there because we cannot perfect what the Holy Spirit is working on. You can't work. You can't do any better than God ever could never improve upon it. We begin to put clamps down and organization and limiting, not limiting God. God is limited within his own word. He says, so he keeps himself within his word. He magnifies his word above his name, he says. It's not that kind of spreading out. I just mean, I don't think we need, I think we need more of, and they were unlearned and untrained men, but they had been with Jesus. That's what blew the Pharisees and the Sadducees away when they bring these guys before them. They were unlearned and untrained men, but they'd been with Jesus and boy, they were good and loving and faithful and gracious and merciful. And that just drove them crazy. That's what drove Paul crazy. Who is this Stephen? Somebody throw a rock at this kid. I'll hold your coats, you know. It broke him. And Paul says, I count it all as dung. All the learning, all the schooling, everything he ever had, I count it all as dung. I call it, it's just what, what's happened to me is amazing. 
Having begun in the spirit, will you now be made perfect in the flesh? Of course not. Of course not. Now, is there anything wrong with studying more? Learning more? No, 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 no. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying you can't improve on the work of the heart that the Holy Spirit's begun. You can't make yourself more righteous. You can't make yourself that way. Of course, you should, you should study. Study to show yourself approved. Know the Word of God. Read it. Spend time. What you're doing is, that's like saying, well, then we're not going to study. That means you're not going to have any more date nights with your wife. That means you're not going to ever talk to her anymore because I've had enough and I don't want to perfect in the flesh what we've begun in the Spirit. We said I do and that's it. No, no, no. You want to get to know each other even better, a deeper intimacy. But that should be the purpose of the knowledge and the gathering. Am I closer to God? Do I understand him better? Because I want to know everything about Jenny. I want to know inside and out. I want to know all about her. What makes her tick? What does she like? What does she doesn't like? You know, I want all of that. And so I bug her to death, you know, kind of thing. Well, that's what God wants. I want that relationship with you. Bug me. Ask me questions. I told you everything about me, you know. So study, 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 but not for the sake of it, but for the sake of him, you know. So he says, it's no longer grace if there's works. What then? What am I saying? Verse 7, he says, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. Now, not before, they just rejected Christ. You're done. That's it. So that's it. Have it your way. We talked about that with Pharaoh. God has given them a spirit of stupor, this is Isaiah 29, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back anyway. Now, what good does it do for Paul to share that with people if they can't open their eyes, if they can't see, if they can't receive, I mean, it's just mean. That's like saying to a blind person, hey, you want to drive? Well, that's just mean. You know I can't see. That's not what he's saying. He's trying to provoke them. Look, not everybody that's Israel is Israel. Not everybody that's governed by God that says they are is governed by God. Some of them have had their eyes darkened because they've refused to receive the grace that God has offered them. They've refused Christ. So you're going to remain blind. That's what Jesus does. He opens our eyes to see. I can see God. I can see this world. I can see people the way God sees them. He opens my eyes. If I refuse that, I can't get my eyes opened any other way. I remain blind. So they're darkened. He's not going to open their eyes. I say then, Verse 11, have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, are they cut off? Are they absolutely worthless? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So just as you're reading through this, as the Romans and the Jews are sitting together saying, do you hear that? God's chosen us to make you jealous. He goes, well, don't get so prideful. He goes back and forth. No, he's using them to, get, to make you jealous. Because he wants you to be saved. Remember, the point of that is not just to make someone, it's not vindictive. God isn't being vindictive. Ever have that relationship in high school? Where you just wanted to make him or her jealous because you're mad at him, you know, or whatever? That's not how God is. That's not what he's trying to do. He's a jealous God for you. He's a jealous God for me. He wants me to know how good he is for me and how good he is for you and for them. 
He's taken these Gentiles and he's bestowed them with grace and mercy and joy that the Jew who is trying to attain righteousness through works can't ever reach. Why are you so happy? Why are you clapping your hands and singing for joy to our God? Because I know Jesus. Oh. Well, we're going to go beat ourselves some more and we're going to go try to law and we're going to try to overcome our guilt and our shame through sacrifices and through good works. And it makes him jealous. I want what you have. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So Gentiles, before you get too excited, remember, although they've fallen or they're stumbled, he is wants to bring them back. He wants to bring them into salvation. It's going to be amazing when that happens. He's moving us towards revelation. After the church's age, chapters 2 and 3, we have verse, chapters 6 through 19, the book of Revelation. That is Israel. It's all about Israel. Their, their chance to receive their Messiah again. It's going to happen. For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify your ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. I love you Gentiles. I accept the fact that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I know that. I try to go to the synagogues, but they always reject me. So I understand who I am. I'm here for you guys. But deep in my heart, I'm doing this also so that they might come to know him. I'm making them jealous. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being wild olive branches were grafted in among them, Gentiles, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. See, I was trying to keep that balance. Israel was broken off because of their rejection of the gospel. That's that blindness. They've rejected the gospel. They're broken off. I took some wild olive branches and I grafted them into the root, an offspring of David, Jesus Christ. But just so you guys who are wild, don't get too excited. If you broke them off, if you're an unbeliever, you can break you off too. And remember this, you don't support the root. Jesus supports you. Keeps in that, keeping that balance. Look, you're brothers, and I want you to all be brothers, Jews or Gentiles. Do not boast. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. What do you do with that? How do you deal with that? You need to. Everybody needs to come to that place and understanding. So I thought, well, once saved, always saved. That's what I've, I've been taught. I've been told. What is he saying here then? Because if I choose to reject Christ in my later days, if I say I walk away from you, God, I reject you, nothing can separate me from the love of God, but I can certainly walk away from it. I still have free will. You know, shucks. I wish I didn't, but I do. Don't be haughty, he says. He won't spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God, both. On those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, continue, abiding faith. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, well, they'll be grafted in. 
for God is able to graft them in again. It's how you continue. It's how you abide. Do you abide in the world? Well, that's where you're going to live. But if you choose not to abide in the world and decide to abide in Christ, welcome to the family of God. Likewise, if you're in the family of God and you choose to walk away from the family of God and choose to become part of the world, welcome to the world. Paul teaches that. Romans teaches us that. God's word teaches us that. For if you were cut off or cut out, of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? In fact, it'll be easier for God to do that than it was to get you in, is the idea. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. And it is a mystery. The nation of Israel didn't want to admit it. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And we've always wondered what that meant. What we believe that means is when the last Gentile gets saved, there's a rapture that takes place. They get taken home and Israel gets their final seven years on the earth spoken of in Daniel 9. Maybe. That's what we think. Are we open to being wrong? Of course. Of course. God can do whatever he wants to do. We're feeble and we're, we're little, little minds. But... That's what we read. That's what we understand. So what is the fullness of the Gentiles? I don't know. If you're a Gentile here tonight and you're not a born-again believer, get saved, will you, tonight? You might be the last one needed. You could be the fullness, you know. We're waiting on you. No pressure or anything. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, irrevocable. God is still interested in Israel. Now we don't have time to go to Daniel nine and talk about it. Read it. We've talked about it in the past, the 70 years of years, 70 years. 70 weeks of years, it's described um, for Israel. And they've had all of them except for one final set of seven years. We know that from Daniel. And we believe that's what takes place in Revelation chapter 6. Uh, chapter 4 of Revelation, the church is raptured up into heaven in chapter 6. And then 4 and 5 talk about what it's like up in heaven. And chapter 6 begins what's that final seven years for the nation of Israel. Because that's his chance. That's their opportunity to believe on him. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Never forget that. That God has shown his mercy upon you and me, not only for the nation of Israel to see and to want and to covet and to crave and to be thirsty for, but also for everybody around you. How come you're so special? How come you get this relationship with God? How come you can forgive people? How can you can have mercy for people? I don't understand that. Because God doesn't throw away people. He doesn't throw them away. If you're still living and breathing, he's still open to forgive. He's still ready to receive you. And we could take that and apply that to our own lives with the people around us. Don't throw them away. They may not want to have anything to do with you, but you pray for them anyway. You minister. You serve them any way you can. 
That's what we're called to do, just like our God does. He lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust because he wants them to all experience that. He doesn't choose. Oh, the depth, Paul says, of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. He just loves what he just said. It's amazing truth of God. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who is first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he writes some more chapters. He got, he got caught up in it there. It's hard not to. I went long. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. It does minister to us. It does. It comforts us. And it helps us understand what's going on around us. And I, we're just thankful for that. We receive it. We submit to it tonight. We submit to your word. And, uh, and that means we believe it. And by faith, we're going we're gonna to apply it to our lives. So help us to show the world how much mercy you've given us and help us to give out that mercy as we've received it from you, that they might want to know you. That's our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.